Hello friends, my name is Ian Graham and I'm the pastor of Ecclesia in Princeton, New Jersey. And I am so excited to introduce to you this teaching series, a series that will look at the story, the big story that the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation, a series we're calling from Garden City. The story begins in a garden and it ends in a city and is defined at every twist and turn by the love and the presence of God. That God will stop at nothing to be God with us. And so if you've ever tried to read the Bible or you've ever been asked, what what actually is the Bible about? We hope that this teaching series will be a blessing to you. and will be an invitation to see the big story of the Bible and to see your story in light of that beautiful, gracious, life-giving, eternal story. So wherever you are, we pray this is a blessing to you. Grace and peace to you. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin was not reckoned where there was no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in, in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, I hope you have uh, found a good cup of coffee. I hope that you are feeling rested, excited about the holidays. It's just been a beautiful time, and we've been in this teaching series where we've been tracing the big story the Bible has been telling, and I hope you were blessed as I was by Savannah's teaching two weeks ago, by Soren last week. We have some really gifted communicators in our midst, and uh, if you missed those, you can always check those out online, but today, today we arrive at the focal point of all, all of human history. What Leslie Newbegin describes the scriptures, he says, the scriptures claim to be a universal, a cosmic history. It's not just a religious group of people telling their story, a marketplace of religious ideas where a bunch of people are telling their version of the story of the world. No, the scriptures, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation claim to be the story that explains all of human history, that reveals who God is and thus answers the question that we all ache, who are we? And what does it mean to live the good life? So today we arrive at the focal point of that story, Jesus on the cross. And I have to be honest, as I reflected, as I knew this was coming, I've, I've literally had three weeks. Like we had teachers that were not me for the last two weeks. I've had so much time to think about this, and I've sort of been overwhelmed. 
Because, like, the cross of Jesus, like, John talks about the things that Jesus said and that he did. And he said, if all of them were to be recorded, the world itself could not hold the books that would be written. And I think about some of the most beautiful reflections, some of those beautiful pieces of art, some of the most beautiful words, the entire New Testament. It's all about the cross. And so today, we are going to try to just carve out a way of understanding what Jesus did for us. And we're not going to say everything because we can't. The world could not contain the books. But my prayer for us today is that by sitting here and tracing what Jesus has done, we will see how deeply God loves each and every person and the ramifications of what he has done, not just for us as individuals, but for our world. So with that in mind, I want to pray, and then I want to get into as we approach this incredible moment in the history of our world. Holy Spirit, Lord, I, I in a way, like unlike few other times, I, I sort of uh, experience my own inadequacy at this moment, where words fail, God. So Lord, I, I'm asking you to come, God, in a way that only you can, to minister to hearts and souls, God, to people who, are, who, who feel like they are carrying the weight of the world. God, would we see that you have carried that already. For those of us who feel far from God and we're not sure that we could put a name to it, can we see in this moment that you have drawn near? Jesus, we ask humbly but expectantly, like children asking a father or a mother, God, would you come? Would you be here in this place, Lord God? We love you. It's in your name we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know if you've read John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Let me just say this over here. If you haven't, you have homework. Uh, it is my favorite book, and so if nothing else, you'll be in my good graces. But in the story itself, it's, a, it's an allegory reflecting on the book of Genesis. And it's this beautifully layered tale that focuses on the Trask family. And the Trask family has these cycles of brokenness. What happened to the father and the mother seems to repeat itself in the generations that follow. And the climax of the book, and I promise you I'm not giving anything away. You should still read it. And plus, like, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on spoiler alerts, but it's been around for a while. But the climax of the book centers on this word, Tim Shell. And as Lee, a good friend of the Trask family, is saying that there is possibility, there is hope, because of this Hebrew word that he finds in Genesis 4, Tim Shell, thou mayest. And so the answer that the book offers to these cycles of brokenness that seem so hopeless is that you can choose, you still have this power to choose a different path, to turn from the thing that is lesser and turn towards the thing that is better, thou mayest, Tim Shell. Salvation then becomes about turning from these wrong things and choosing the right things. But the rest of the book bears witness to this force, this, this force that seems to hold the characters in the story in captivity, that seems to drive their decisions, that seems to repeat the sins of the past in the future. And today in our teaching series, we arrive at the cross of Jesus. As we've been tracing the story from garden to city, we arrive 
at the focal point. We started this teaching series talking about story and how it functions in our world, the competition between swirling narratives and whose story is the right one. And in our postmodern understanding, how would we even know? There's so many competing stories. And if anything we've been taught, it's that we should be suspicious of every story because every story seems to be a claim for power. It seems to be self-serving in and of itself. And yet, as we've spoken about, the scriptures claim to be a meta story. They're claiming to tell the story of God's acts in the world that explain and give purpose and meaning to our world. And as we arrive at the cross today in our unpacking of this big story the Bible is telling, it's important for us to begin to ask the question, the sort of overwhelming question, why does the cross bear so much significance? Now, it would be strange if somebody walked in here wearing an electric chair necklace around their neck. Would it not? You'd be like, I think I'm going to sit like, you know, COVID social distancing. I'm just going <laughs> to stay over there. It would be a little bit weird. And yet the cross historically was an instrument of execution and torture. And Christians have found in this symbol... The symbol of that, that explains their life. People are, wear this cross around their neck and they claim that Jesus on that instrument of execution has done something on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago that still bears witness today. And so today we begin to ask ourselves the question, why does the cross bear so much significance? What does the cross have to say to us? Now, if you grew up in church, more than likely, you've been given some sort of formulaic understanding of the cross, right? What is the cross? Why is it significant? Well, because on the cross, Jesus paid for our sins, right? He, he did something on the cross that we could not do for ourselves. And I want to offer to you today that uh, that understanding of the cross is 100% right. Of course, Jesus in that space paid for our sins. But I also, I, what I want to do by tracing so much of what we've already talked about is maybe say it's not less than that, but it's also a lot more than that. That if we begin to understand the ramifications of the cross, we see that, that the cross itself was lived out in a culture that was very different than our own. Jesus died on the cross in a culture that was not hyper-individualized. It was not people that saw themselves as independent, autonomous beings. They were deeply interwoven into a community, into a fabric of, of, of people, of shared reality. And so when we begin to understand the cross of Jesus in light of its fuller ramifications, we see that it's pulling us beyond our own individual relationship with Jesus. It's not less than that. And again, so important. But it's so, so much more. And as we see the ramifications of the cross today, I hope that you will both be, be challenged to receive this life anew. That his blood truly has paid for your sins. But also to see the reverberations of what it means to follow Jesus in this day. That what Jesus won for us on the cross, us, you and I, and the people that aren't in this room, matters infinitely and as we as the people of God are invited to live this out through his life death and resurrection Jesus re-narrates the entire story of the scriptures he gathers 
all that has been done and said, and he gives it a new meaning and purpose. Now, this isn't just about Jesus making the right choices where people that went before him, kings and Adam and Abraham, made less than right choices. This is about something much more profound than that. Jesus is redeeming the story. Now, you could ask yourself the question, if, if God knew that Jesus was just going to die on the cross and pay for everybody's sins, why did he wait so long? Like, what was the point of all of that? Right? Like, why wait several thousand years? Why do all this covenant and this law stuff? Like, why not just be like, okay, here's Jesus. He's going to die. You're going to kill him. And now you're all redeemed. Isn't it perhaps a hint to the point of the story all along that God will not be God apart from us, that God is wanting to draw near to us, that the lived history of our lives has significance, that the moments of our individual lives have something to say about the world that is to come. This is the story we've been trying ever so patiently and carefully to draw out. And it's the story we'll see borne out on the cross. Now, Irenaeus was an apprentice of Jesus in the second century he lived in what is modern-day France. He was a leader in the church, and he writes about this theme, and I'm going to invite you into a little bit of biblical studies today. He says of Jesus, Jesus recapitulated in himself the ancient formulation of man, that he might kill sin, deprive death of its power, and vivify man. This theme of recapitulation is one I want to focus on today because it's the way that Jesus takes all that has gone before him and gives it new meaning and significance. Now, recapitulation, not a word that we use a ton in our day, but caput in Latin just means head. It means that he is giving us our lives under the headship of a new Lord. Paul will pick up on this dichotomy in Romans 5, the text that Luke for, read for us. I'm going to read it again. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even though over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. And in Paul's understanding... He sees everything before the coming of Jesus as under the headship of Adam. Everything that has transpired, everything that has taken place has happened in this sort of kingdom of darkness, this dominion of brokenness that Adam has ushered in. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. But Paul says when Jesus comes... He is ushering us. He is bringing us into a new reality. It's not just that he saves us from our sins. It's that he has completely transported our lives to a completely different way of living. Recapitulation. The writer of Ephesians, Paul, will pick up on this theme. We'll see it next week. Ephesians 1.10. He'll talk about everything will be gathered in all of its fullness under the headship of Jesus. Jesus as Lord. In him and through him all things were made. They live and they move and they have their being. And we're going to see how Jesus accomplishes this today on the cross. And so we have these sort of two kingdoms, these two realities, these two eras, the kingdom of Adam, but Jesus recapitulates. He takes all the story that has come and he gathers it unto himself. And he says, this 
is the true meaning, the way that history has been moving all along. Now, as a roadmap, I'm going to look at some of the major themes that we've looked at so far. Zechariah, can you put up that slide that just says the story thus far? All right, fantastic. So I'm going to trace some of these. Now, my better angels won this morning, which is good for everybody involved, because I was like, I can't do all of these. So every part of me as a teacher wants to be like, okay, here's where we've been in every single part of this. But uh, I want my family to continue to love me after this. And so at the very least, we're going to just touch on a couple of these. But you see just a very, very high level. And this is what we've been doing in this series. We've been just tracing what is the story the Bible is telling. There's a couple of historical events, 587. There's some scriptural sort of like, this is what this book of the Bible is kind of referencing, which I don't know is kind of helpful, right? You read Jeremiah without any context, you're like, God is mad. He's mad at everybody, and I have no idea why. But if you kind of see it in light of the exile that's coming, it makes a little more sense. Lamentations just seem like there's no hope. Oh, my goodness. And so I, I just wanted to give you a reference point, and we'll touch on a few of these today. I'm going to focus specifically on the, the first three chapters of Genesis, and then we'll get to the cross of Jesus. Now, in Genesis 1, in week 1, so if you go back and you listen to the podcast of this teaching series, it will be quite helpful. But in week 1... We talked about how God created the world. He spoke the world into being. Words create worlds. He crafted the entire cosmos as a temple, as a place where he would dwell. It's not that God was just making a world and then saying, winding it up like a clock and saying, and best of luck to you. No, it was always about God drawing near in the midst of the world that he created, the transcendent God making himself known. In the time frame and the space of humanity. And he makes humankind in his image. Those male and female he made in his image. Every single person you see. Every single person you're sitting next to. Is made in the image of the infinite God. You're sitting next to some pretty impressive people. And God made them in his image. And he said join me. Be fruitful and multiply. Steward this world. Have dominion over it. And dominion was never about exploitation, but it was about careful stewardship and cultivation. God makes the world in his image. By his very word, he announces, let there be light, and there is light. And that word which spoke the world into being, as John 1 reflects on what Jesus has done in coming to us, now takes on flesh and bone in the life of Jesus says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word has now made Himself known, has taken up residence in our, as Eugene Peterson says, our very neighborhood. The Word becomes flesh. The Word that brought the world to life draws near to the world, taking on our humanity. That's Genesis 1. Genesis 2, we get a zoomed-in picture of the shalom that God has woven into the world. The human vocation comes into full view. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live in response to this world that God has created? It means to live in the blessing of God, to receive the good gifts of the abundance of creation in relationship to God, in worship, in obedience. Remember, God says, you can eat from any tree in the garden, just don't touch this one. There is permission that God, like overwhelming permission. And then there's one prohibition. It's not good for you to be over here. Limits. Part of being human is to receive limits. 
the vocation of humanity is drawn out. And Jesus will live this out throughout his earthly life. He will steal away from the crowds and spend time communing with his father. He will serve out of the abundance of that life. He will heal and raise the dead and feed thousands. Because this is what a life with Jesus does for us. It gives us this inexhaustible well that God's love is always enough. And that because God is the creator of the universe, there is always enough to draw from. Because that is who he is. He's a God of abundance. He's called us to live in this abundance. And he's also called us to limits. He's called us to be human in relationship to God. And Jesus will live this out fully. His life, the moments of his life matter What Soren unpacked for us last week, the incarnation of Jesus, is not just a prelude to him being crucified. The things that he does matter. Him sitting with sinners and tax collectors matters. These people that have been told that God is far from them, and Jesus says, let's have a meal. That is of eternal significance. And you know what that might suggest to us today? Is that the individual moments of our lives matter. Those things that we do that seem so mundane or so antithetical to anything holy or sacred, perhaps God is saying, hello, wake up. The infinite God is meeting us in those moments. Genesis 3, we have the shattering of shalom. The serpent gives voice to the possibility, the first one to objectify God in the scriptures. Did God really say that? He sows the seed of doubt. How can you be so sure God is good? How would you know? Did God really say that? And Adam and Eve in that moment see that the tree that has been forbidden to them is pleasing to the eye. But not just pleasing to the eye, it's, it's useful. It can be taken. It's pleasing to make one wise. And the serpent whispers this possibility and instead of trust, entrusting themselves to God. And what it means to be human fully, as we see in Genesis 2, is to fully entrust our lives to God. And instead, in that moment, they transgress the limits that God has given to them. They take from the tree. And going back to our passage from Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Sin and death in a mysterious but consistent way, are linked in the biblical understanding. Was Adam transgresses the limits that have been placed upon him, he introduces something into the fabric of creation, something shattering to the shalom that God has woven. Paul understands sin, as he talks about it in Romans, especially Romans 6, as a power. It's not just that you've done something wrong. It's not just that you, you know, I told you the rules and you, you chose a different way. It's not just that. Paul understands it as this enslaving force. Something that you've given your life over to. Now, it bears asking the question. Like I have little kids. We have rules in our house. There's not a rule our kids could break later, like if they, if they like, like I, I told you not to do this, and you did this, now I have to kick you out of the house. And the question could be asked in Genesis 3, I mean, didn't they just like, I mean, God told them not to eat the, the tree, or the fruit from the tree, and they ate the fruit, like couldn't God just be like, ah, you know, a second chance, right? Is God being petty? Is he being arbitrary? Is he acting beneath God? Well, I don't think it's because God is just like, 
I gave you one rule and you broke it, therefore get out of my house, that kind of thing. I don't think that's what's going on here. What I think is happening here is we misunderstand the effects and the consequences that God pronounces because we misunderstand what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God, is to be endowed with authority, is to be endowed with a level of power in the world that we can misuse. When we abuse and fall short of our human vocation, when we, as Romans says, fall short of the glory of God through idolatry, we misuse our powers that are designed for blessing and creativity. When we do those things, we introduce dark forces into the world. And this is what the powers and principalities are. As we see in our own day, Sham trials, justice not quite borne out. We see the ongoing effects of things like white supremacy in our world. This is what this is. Human agency and authority given to forces that are bigger than ourselves. And so I don't think God is just being like, you messed up. Sorry. Wish I could do something for you. In fact, what we see is that God does not pronounce the sentence of death in Genesis 3. He weaves clothes for the humans, and he walks with them. He cares for them. He keeps showing up. No, God is a God of covenant. But there are consequences because we are so endowed with authority. I think C.S. Lewis captures this really well in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you're familiar with the film or the book, the young man Edmund, they keep calling him a son of Adam, son of Adam. And Edmund doesn't realize that in betraying his siblings and in giving himself over to the white witch, he has introduced forces that he never meant to introduce into the world of Narnia. And it will require Aslan to do something on his behalf. But I don't think God is just being arbitrary or petty. To love, even for God, involves great risk. It involves giving something of yourself over to another. And God loves us deeply. And He's endowed us. He's called us, made in His image. And I think what we see in Genesis 3 is if we misuse that image, we see the consequences of that. Satan will come to Jesus during his life and will tempt him in the wilderness with the same question, if you really are God's son, did God really say But you see, Jesus lives out of the limits of his identity. When Jesus was baptized just before this incident, he hears as he comes out of the waters the voice from heaven saying, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus lives out of the abundance, the deep well of his identity. And he is able to recapitulate, to re-narrate the story as Satan comes to Jesus as he came to Adam and says, Did God really say that? Jesus says, I know who I am. And it's interesting, if you read that text in Luke 4, Satan's words to Jesus, oh, if you really are God's son, Jesus responds to him with the words of Scripture, telling who he is. Okay, so we could, we could go through the, uh, the way this sort of narrates with Abraham and with Exodus and the king like David in exile, but I assume you guys want to eat lunch today. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. Eventually... Because of the leadership of the kings that are put over the people of Israel and the heart of the people, God eventually gives the people over to judgment. And Savannah traced this for us well a couple weeks ago. The kingdom becomes divided in 722. The Assyrians uh, destroy the northern kingdom and in 587 B.C., which is like a fundamental 
date. Just get that in your head. 587 is like so much of the Old Testament sort of revolves around this date. And so much of the hopes of the New Testament only makes sense when you understand the reality of exile. People taken from their home, people enslaved, marched to a foreign place and forced to acculturate, assimilate to the culture. And if you know the history of the children of Israel, you know that exile itself physically does not last all that long. It's only about 50 years. Even in the same century, they're back in their homeland. They're able to rebuild the temple. And books like Nehemiah and Ezra trace this, like trying to put the pieces back together. The second temple is completed, but still people have this sense that even though they're home, even though they're back in this land that was promised to him, to them, given uh, through this promise to Abraham, they still have this sense that they're not really home. That exile is ongoing. They're still under, most often, under the uh, oppressive powers of foreign nations, the Greeks and the Romans. Pompey marches on Jerusalem in 63 BC. We see that there's this consistent theme that even though it seems like some things are going well or some things are being fulfilled, there's this ache, this longing that something is not right. They're awaiting. As they, as they wait, they suffer, they hope, they formulate these, these dreams, these visions of a Messiah, of a king like David who will come. And, you know, like, I don't know if you have any uh, favorite sports teams, but I have some that I still look back on the glory days. Like still, like my favorite football team won when I was 16. And it's still like, and I'm 36 now. That's been 20 years. I'm like, oh, like you just think you're going to win all the time. And, you know, the Braves won the World Series, but you don't really care about that. Um, but the reality is like that sense of like, remember the days that were before. And maybe if you don't like sports, maybe you can, you can sort of put yourself in this place of nostalgia. That sense of like, oh, remember that? That was so good. And they formulate these hopes and these dreams. They remember David, and David was a king who won battles. And you know what's really fun? Being on the winning side. You know what's terrible? Losing. And they're like, <laughs> David, a king like David, one who will lead us, who will take care of our oppressive pagan foreign enemies and will elevate us to the place that God has always promised us we should be in. And so throughout exile, throughout these years between uh, the, you know, some of the words of Scripture and the appearance of Jesus, he had these hopes being formed. And then along comes Jesus of Nazareth. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near. And this is not some esoteric language to the people that are listening to him. This means something politically. This means something that God is on the move. That Jesus is bringing the fullness of God's promises close to people. This is not just, hey, God's going to save your soul and it's all, you're going to get to go to heaven when you die. Jesus is like, I am reordering the whole thing. It's all going to be turned upside down. The revolution is coming. And he's healing. He's raising the dead. He's feeding the 5,000. And he claims to know God in a way that is unique to him. A way that is special to him as his father. And this causes people that were the religious gatekeepers of the time to kind of put their antenna up. And they're like, why does he keep saying that? And then sometimes when he heals people, he walks over to them and he says, your sins are forgiven. Like, who's this guy think he is? And then on Palm Sunday, 
like the 30th or 33rd year of his life, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people gather along the streets like a parade, and they lay down palms, a symbolic gesture of welcoming a king to his rightful throne. And they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Save us, Son of David. They welcome him in triumphal procession. The people are ready. You see, the city of Jerusalem during the Passover, which was remembering what happened in the Exodus, remembering when God liberated slaves, literally destroyed the armies of Pharaoh in such a miraculous way and completely undid them. The people are remembering that story. They're gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate that story. And, oh, wouldn't you look, there's a king riding into town, and they are ready for a fight. Because in our human construct... The way that political powers, the way that oppressive powers get overthrown is by revolution. Violence, often. And so they're like, here comes the king. This is God's man. This is our guy. Save us, son of David. We are ready to fight. And Jesus goes from that moment. He marches into the temple. He turns over the tables of the oppressive powers that are within the very temple And he says, you've turned my house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, into a den of robbers and thieves. And it's that that the religious leaders who have been like, this guy keeps claiming to be God's son in a special way. And now he's judging the temple. It's that moment where they say, he's got to go. We are going to kill him. Because, not because they're jealous. Well, there's a little bit of jealousy there. But mostly because these are people for whom they understand that God will only act on their behalf if they are living rightly. They need to be a pure and holy nation. If there's somebody, what Jesus is doing, what they call it, is blasphemy. Claiming a special relationship to God, he is leading the people astray. And God will not honor that. And so they say, we have to get rid of this Jesus. He deserves to die. And so it's not just that they're legalists, it's not just that they're jealous, there's a lot of that in there, and the the gospel writers talk about that, but it's also that they think they're doing the right thing. They think in getting rid of Jesus, they are purifying their nation. And so Jesus, this one who has a special relationship with God, goes through the last week of his life. The religious leaders are looking for a way to capture him, to trap him. And Jesus, on the last night of his life, goes to a garden. Hmm, Interesting that it's a garden. It's like we've heard of that before. And in this moment, all the forces of darkness are converging upon him. He invites his friends to pray alongside of him, but they've just eaten a big meal, wine and fish, and they can't stay awake. And Jesus is alone in the Garden of Gethsemane on that Thursday night after he shared the Passover meal with his friends. And he cries out to God, my soul is burdened beyond what I can bear. And he says, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And yet, Jesus is re-narrating the story. Jesus is not just the son of Adam. He's the son of God. And he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is recapitulating the story, renaming the story. And as he prays in agony, Luke describes him sweating blood. In this moment, this fever-pitched moment, 
those religious leaders who have been looking for an opportunity to catch him now arrive. And they have come with swords and with clubs, and they've come to arrest him. And you know what Peter does? The most natural response ever. Peter's got a sword. He's like, this is God's Messiah, the son of David. You know what time it is? It's game on. Like he pulls out his sword and slices off a dude's ear. And Peter is like looking for more. Like he's, he's ready. He's born for this. Cut some more people. But to Peter's surprise, as he is swashbuckling, he feels Jesus' hand as he is extending his sword. Jesus tells him to put down his sword. He lifts the same hand to the ear of the one whom Peter has slashed. He heals his ear that Peter has just cut clean off. And he says to Peter, this is not the way. Peter, disillusioned, watches as Jesus is arrested. Jesus is hauled off through sham trial after sham trial, the high priest, the local religious leaders, and eventually Pontius Pilate. Many of the same voices that hailed Jesus as the conquering king said, Hosanna, now gather outside of Pilate's palace, and they yell, crucify him. Our world is no stranger to all of these events. They say, execute him, kill him on a cross. The Roman cross was was reserved for slaves and rebels, the lowest classes of people. Like nice, polite society didn't even want to mention the cross. It was a cruel and gruesome death that Roman citizens didn't even talk about with one another. And I want to just read a bit of the story from John, beginning in verse 14 of John 19. Now, It was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. And he said to the Jews, this is Pilate talking, here is your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but the emperor. Then he handed them over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but write, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots. For it was to fulfill the scripture that says they divided my clothes among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. So let's survey what's going on here. Jesus is abandoned by his friends. He is falsely accused in a sham trial, the kind of miscarriage of justice that we see so often in our world. Some of us have noticed that this week. Jesus suffers a miscarriage of justice. Jesus lives a life of low status as he walks this earthly life, and then he is sentenced to die the death of a slave reserved only for the lowest of society. They strip him naked, dishonoring him in front of all that watch. 
Now, we've only scratched the surface, but now we're getting at the heart of what does it mean for Jesus to die on a cross? James Cone writes in The Cross in the Lynching Tree. He says, the gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross. What is redemptive is the faith. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of death, life out of death, and hope out of despair. Remember that theme? Recapitulation. Fleming Rutledge says of the manner in which Jesus dies, the horrible, vicious, gruesome manner, the trajectory of the story taken together with the horror of crucifixion leads us to the conclusion that the hideous God-forsakenness of Christ's public execution corresponds to the soul-destroying nature of sin at its utmost reach, even as God renounces sin and executes final judgment upon it. Fleming is calling us to see that at this moment, as Jesus is being made a public example of, that he is revealing by the way that he has killed the utter despair and depths and depravity of our own sin. And at the same time, because God's love exhausts all sin, because God's love is always greater, he is revealing the very heart of God. That the love of God is stronger than the power of sin. That he will not give up on us. Jesus is the creative word of God in Genesis 1. The one who was in the beginning. Just as that voice pronounced blessing and life. Now Jesus on the cross pronounces mercy. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is the one who lives out the vocation of humanity. He entrusts himself completely to God. Even at the depths of being forsaken by God. He says to God, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Jesus becomes the curse that was pronounced in Genesis 3. Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. What began when Adam and Eve took what was not theirs from a tree now is ended as Jesus is nailed to a tree. His very hands are placed upon this wooden cross. Jesus is the blessing of Abraham. The, the promise fulfilled to all the nations, Pilate writes, Here's Jesus, King of the Jews, and he writes it in every language that was known in that day. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the one through whom every nation on earth will be blessed. And we see this working out in our own day. As the church is gathered and will gather today and throughout the week from every tongue and tribe and nation, Jesus is the new exodus. If sin is a power that keeps us in captivity, he is the sacrifice Passover lamb whose blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins, the liberation of all. His arms outstretched on the cross are like the walls of the Red Sea, inviting all who enter to find freedom and life. Jesus is the king in the line of David, but this Messiah doesn't need to shed the blood of his enemies. This Messiah gives of his own blood. This Messiah doesn't need to fight to come into his kingdom, but he simply extends his hands and entrusts himself to God. Jesus shows us that the real return from exile is here, and it's in him. It's in his very actions, his very words, as he himself goes into the exile of death. The far country of God forsakenness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he is preparing for us a place, and he will bring us home. Jesus is all of this and so, so much more. But the gift is not like the trespass, Paul writes. For the, if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? 
Now, friends, I've said over and over again throughout this story, as we've been telling the story of the Bible, it's not concepts for you to get down. It's not dates and, and events. It's not less than that, but it's so much more because God has drawn near to us. The story is about God stopping at nothing to be God with us. And fully and finally, we see on the cross, Hebrews 1 says that in the past, He has spoken in many ways, but now He has spoken in His Son who is the exact representation of his being. Jesus is what God looks like. And if Jesus is what God looks like, how much does he love us? How great is the love that he has lavished upon us that we would be called his children? At the cross of Jesus, all sin, all death, all seemingly senseless suffering as we sit by bedsides, as we watch loved ones die, all violence, all God-forsaken places, all miscarriages of justice, all agony, all pain, all suffering. It's not just that Jesus cancels them out. He takes them into his very self. Gregory of Nazianza says that whatever is assumed by Jesus is healed. And at the cross of Jesus, he has re-narrated the story and he's taken all of it upon himself. By the wounds of Jesus, Ecclesia. We are healed. Corrie ten Boom, in her memoir, speaks of the suffering of the Nazi concentration camps. And she describes the one day a week where they would march all the prisoners out in front of the soldiers, and they would strip them naked, and they would not let them cover themselves. And they would stand there to be shamed, to be mocked. And Corrie ten Boom is there with her sister, I, just, I still can't fathom this moment. She leans forward to her sister, Betsy, and she says to her, they took his clothes too. And in some way, friends, the point of the story, in a way that I, I only can say to you with everything that I have, is that all of our pain, all of our suffering is summed up in this cross of Jesus, that it's all about this. That in some way, just as Corey ten Boom can endure unspeakable suffering and find some sense of solace in this world that seems often so random and so pointless, they took his clothes too. This is what the cross of Jesus is. He has assumed all of it. It's not just that he's made a checklist and said, okay, I've endured everything that you can endure in life. He has assumed all of our brokenness. And he has conquered it. Colossians 2 says he made a show of the powers, that he nailed them to a cross. Ecclesia, this is our only hope, our only consolation. Jesus crucified, the blood of the Lamb shed for you and for me. Tim Schill tells us that we mayest. But the problem is we can't. The problem is there is a power that, that is over us that we cannot defeat on our own, but we have a Messiah, a Lord, who has done it for us. And he has done it once and for all. He says fully and finally, it is finished. He has assumed it all. He has healed it all. I want to invite the worship team to come up. Friends, there's nothing that I can say other than this is an invitation and if you'd like prayer, we have some people that will be uh, up here, in the, actually in the back of the room. And I just want to invite you, if you're just like, I've never, I've never received that for my own life, today's the day. 
He has done it. He has finished the work on the cross, and he has invited you into his life. On the third day, after this terrible execution, he gets up out of the grave. It's God's great yes to Jesus' life, acknowledging his faithfulness that will stand for all of time. Jesus' blood is for each and every one of us. And I know that's such a weird thing for us to say in this modern world. But Paul says that the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to this world. We are people of the cross. It is the focal point of the story. He has assumed it all. He has healed it all. They took his clothes too. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and respond and worship, and then we'll move to the table. Jesus, I invite your presence here in a unique way. God, don't let us walk out of here the same. God, because your cross stands for all of eternity, God, you were enthroned on an instrument of torture and death. Because your love is ever greater. There is nothing in this world, not height, nor depth, nor angel, or demon, that could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are your children. And you have gone to the far country, the depths of exile, to draw us back, to call us home, to fulfill your promises, to be king and lord and priest. And we simply receive it. We respond in awe and the wonder of the cross, Lord Jesus. So would you meet us here, Lord? Would you help us to receive this life today? If we've been resisting, God, if we've turned away to lesser things, God, your cross invites us back. Your arms stand extended, embracing the entire world, even as you are nailed to a post. You became a curse for us, God, so that we would be set free. We receive that here this morning. We pray all these things in your beautiful and strong name, the name of Jesus that stands for all of eternity.